I actually started in real estate because my best friend, David Ravitz, who's partners with David Offer at Berkshire okay. Hathaway. Mm-hmm. We were roommates at the time. I was renting a room from him in his condo and they were killing it. I was still in the music business, making no money. And soon enough, I was running out of money, putting everything on cards. I had each band I had a card for. I didn't have any money and they had less than me. And Dave Ravitz was in real estate. I'm like, you guys are killing it. I think I'll go sell real estate. And Ravitz is like, he said, this is a brutal business. I can't tell you, encourage you to do it, but if you do it, you would be good. You know numbers, you know people. It's like, you would be great. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the titans of real estate. The show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. Our next guest is a lifelong Angelino and top producing luxury real estate agent who consistently ranks among the top 250 agents in the country. He has closed over 350 transaction sides and over 1 billion of sales volume. A compass evangelist, he continues to thrive in his role as principal luxury states division. Please welcome to the show, Danny Brown. Hey, Warren. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to see you. So let's do this, shall we? Yeah, I'm ready to rock. I appreciate you coming up here and coming to see me. We're on the coveted Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Wilshire and Beverly. Usually I'm interviewing people. This is great that now I'm on the other side of the mic. Other side of the chair. And I've been a big fan of your show. So awesome. Kudos to you. I love the show. You've had a lot of interesting guests, great content, and I listen to it every episode. So I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, thank you very much. So let's get into life before real estate. I always like to, like, where did this journey for Danny yeah. begin? Tell us about uh, well, where you grew up. Poor child that grew up in Watts. No, I uh, actually was a privileged child that grew <laughs> up on the west side of Los Angeles, born at Cedar Sinai of Lebanon, downtown LA. So I'm true diehard. It no you longer are. exists. So born in LA, parents were divorced very young. I don't remember my parents being together. So that had a huge impact, obviously, on me. And one of the things that had a, a big impact was now looking back, I ended up living in two houses growing up, one west of the 405, one east of the 405. So for all the drama and negativity and emotional distress that comes through families that divorce, looking back, that actually helped me because I've built a a network that's just extraordinary on both sides of the 405. And now doing what I do, it makes sense that that that's part of it. So I grew up in the West Side. My sanctuary early on in life was sports. And I dove into sports deep deeply like most boys do. And as I got older and older and sort of the teenage years, it became apparent that I could continue to play at a higher level if I wanted to. And had to make a decision as people were getting into all sorts of trouble and parties and drugs. Did you get into any trouble? Any of that trouble? Uh, I'd say I was on the edges, periphery. Were- <laughs> I didn't get into much trouble. I was a, I was so into the sports, and I knew at a young age I was like, you know what? I have I have a chance, so I want to go all out. So I pursued the sports and let you know the partying and all that sort of on the side, and ended up playing through high school and college, and ended up had a big injury that sort of changed my trajectory. And my first job before real before real estate, the entertainment business is where I went. So after okay. my sports ended, I ended up playing baseball, ended at USC, got in the entertainment business because I was promoting parties and promoting bands and I was DJing and doing a lot of stuff. So I figured in the music business, I love music. Now, were you, did you have your own promotion company or were you working for somebody? I would hardly call it a promotional company. I would say me and getting buddies to pass out flyers and, you know, rent a cheap warehouse and charge 10 bucks at the door and pay somebody to bounce and pay someone to DJ and, you know, at the end of the night, make a couple hundred bucks. And we were just pumped. So I did that through college. And that got me into looking for talent and being interested in bands. So I started pursuing that. And my first job in music business was just interning in college for Interscope Records with Jimmy Ivan nice. at uh, Interscope. So yeah. I saw all that going down. And uh, I wanted to pursue that full force. I wanted to pursue A&R and producing. And so I did the mailroom on assistant and I grinded it out. 
And was at clubs every night looking at bands, five or six bands a night and out till three in the morning every night. And I wasn't a party animal. I was really taking it serious, although there was a lot of partying going on around me. So, you know, that uh, went on for years and there was a lot of grinding and not a lot of money. I mean, five bucks an hour kind of stuff. And eventually towards the end, I took a risk and I said, you know what? I have a couple of bands I was working with on my own on the side and I developed them. And I thought, you know what? One of them was getting some interest from labels. Give me some names. Come on. The only names that you would know that I didn't get any direct credit for were, but bands like Jimmy Eat World. Oh yeah. My Chemical Romance. I worked for the guy that signed those bands. And so I got to see it up front. An incredible, talented, smart guy. Uh, His name was Craig Aronson and uh, he passed away rest in peace, an incredible guy and mentor. So I did a lot of grunt work following him and learned a ton. And uh, so all those bands were huge successes, but I had some of my own that you've never heard of. What's interesting, Danny, and we have a similar, slightly similar story here. I I had a three and a half-ish year sort of career in the music business working for a music magazine called BAM. Remember BAM? Of course. So, on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. Bam. So I was- Big and, hair. That was a big, big hair, hair time. That was early Guns 90s. Roses. Early yeah. 90s. And, um, of course. And I'm a musician. I play in bands. I used to play there in bands. You go. I'm a retired rock star. But- uh, We can same, jam a little. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I had friends in the in that worked for labels. And so it was I would that was my scene for that three was, and a half years. So Going that to club. was my scene for- yeah. So I get it. college till about late 20s when I got into real estate. So what happened in real estate, how I got into real estate was Wait, my- Wait, before you go into that, I'm hold jumping on, all don't, around. don't jump. Lord. Don't jump, Danny. So let's go back. I want to hear. So as your childhood, so both sides of the 405, this is really interesting. And because yeah. this is your home base now, so you've got a real broad and unique perspective on that. Yes. Now, what did your parents do for work? What did that look like? My dad was an endodontist in Beverly Hills by day and a jazz musician by night. His parents wouldn't allow him to pursue music. And said, like most Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, that you got to be a doctor, lawyer, dentist. And he being responsible, as they said, to do the right thing. And he was a smart guy. He went to dental school and got got into endodontics. So he did that. And now he's retired and he's doing full-time music. Has a studio in the back of his house that he's had for 30 years. My mom is an interior designer. So I grew up around design and real estate and used to work with her in my summers between baseball and football practice and summer leagues. I'd be moving furniture and carpets and schlepping stuff around for her. Both of them were very much um, influential in terms of both being startup, small business people. My stepfather was also an entrepreneur. He did commercial real estate financing and factoring, and he was a big influence on me as being a businessman and thinking big. My stepmom was a casting director. So I had a lot of entrepreneurs around me, and they all actually had really a lot of success investing in real estate. My dad did a lot of investing early on in Park City and Deer Valley, Utah, the type of stuff in the, like, the 70s and 80s where you'd buy a lot for 100000 and sell it a year later for 300000 So he was involved early on that. And so did that, did that get you interested in real estate? Because you went, I want to- For so, sure. So you were entertainment, you were SC, you were playing baseball, which is, congratulations, that's a big time. Do you know John Riley, by the way? Did you? I know the name, yeah. So he he played. He was a pitcher at SC. Yeah. He, I grew up with him. Okay, I know. Um, I think he was a little older, but I know the A little name. older, yeah. I'm a little older than you probably I don't are. know. I'm a lot <laughs> older than you think. Uh, but, so, uh, yeah, real estate was – the real estate bug was always in our family because I saw at a young age, I'd go to these lots with my dad in Utah. And we'd go on these ski trips early on, and, and I, there'd be flags in the ground and – stakes around the lot and you know i'd hear what's going on and it's fascinating that wow you could yeah i didn't really understand the numbers but you i understood you could buy it for a hundred thousand and sell it for three hundred thousand that sounded pretty good and i knew my stepfather was also financing big commercial buildings and i would so i was always hearing about deals and clients and then my mom was constantly remodeling people's homes and i'd be interning for her so it was around me you had a really good and yeah. i never even realized it that right. it was around me. It was just, that was the normal. That was normal. So I never re- I never thought about real estate, even though it was always around me. It's very cool. And you, and, and you emanated from this creative space with your, your dad's jazz and your mom's, you know what I mean? That, yeah, we have a so lot of creativity yeah. in my family. My aunt was a big screenwriter. My uncle's a big artist in New York. So arts and artists are in my family. And that's probably my natural innate skill set. For similar reasons to my dad, I figured I'd pursue 
business, but yeah. I thought I was, you know, I tried to pursue the creative side of the music business. That's where I first went. And here I ended up in real estate. How about that? Well, you started with Berkshire Hathaway, right? I actually started in real estate because my best friend, David Ravitz, who's partners with David Offer at Berkshire yeah. Hathaway, mm-hmm. we were roommates at the time. I was renting a room from him in his condo, and they were killing it. I was still in the music business, making no money. What year? Is- this is now like you know late 90s, getting close to the millennium 2000. And I, one of my bands that I was working with was Kitten Heat and getting offers from labels. And I'm like, this is it. I'm going to stop and just focus on this. I did that. And soon enough, I was running out of money and putting everything on cards. I had each band I had a card for. I didn't have any money and they had less than me. And Dave Ravitz was in real estate. I'm like, you guys are killing it. I think I'll go sell real estate and make money and funnel it into this. Support the bands. And Ravitz is like, "Uh, first of all, nobody does what David Offer does. That's an anomaly. So don't compare anything to that. He said, this is a brutal business. You get kicked in the nuts. You have to have a steel cup on every day. He's like, I can't tell you, encourage you to do it. But if you do it, you would be good. You know numbers, you know people. He's like, you would be great. So that's how it started. 2001, 2002. Tell us about your first sale. I love love to hear about the first sale. (laughs) First sale was my girlfriend at the time, or maybe my ex-girlfriend at the time. But she was, we were very close friends. And when I got my license, she's like, oh, I'm buying with you. And she bought a condo in Santa Monica, 4th Street, 940 14th Street. It was like 500000 at the time. And it, you know, you're at a 50% split. And you have a 50% split on top of that with a mentor. So you get a tw- basically 25% is what I made in my first couple deals. And that, that was the first deal. Very cool. Started from there. So you mentioned, so your mentor, so David Offer was was one of your mentors. Yeah, really David Ravitz, who was his partner and right-hand man. Okay. Yes, both of them. So what what was their style? Like, how did they bring you up? Was it grinded out tough love or was it more visionary, strategic, hey, think long-term? Like, what was that? I'm just curious. That's an interesting question because I'd have to go back and think about it. Their style and their knowledge is pretty much second to none in terms of nuts and bolts. They're about business and not smoke and mirrors. And they're about working hard, knowing the market better than anybody, knowing the contract better than anyone. So that's how I grew up. Know the contract as well as a lawyer, know the inventory better than everybody, give people honest, sound advice every day. Don't chase the deal. Don't chase the close. It's nothing to do with that. And by the way, don't be flashy. Don't brag about it. Stay under the radar. And I didn't even realize how huge David Offer was to probably 10 or 15 years later because they're both so humble, so low-key, and underplay. You don't see them in the media. You don't see them taking ads. and So I thought it was normal. That was the only thing I had to look at was that. And so that accelerated my business because they worked hard, first in the office, last out. And so it was me and David Offer and David Ravitz. It was Prudential, John Arrow, when I started. But it was us first in the morning, last at night, every day. Yeah for 15 years. Well, a common thread with our podcast, Titans of Real Estate. Obviously, we're, we're interviewing people that have done very, very well yeah. in this space. Well, he's a titan. I'm he, not. For sure. Well, you've done very well. The commonality that, that I see is, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of strategic, sort of looking back, you made the decision early not to go it alone and to soak up all that experience and wisdom from yeah. people like David who've been there, done that, and we're doing it. Um, because that's really sort of a faster track than trying to absolutely to go it alone and so it's an interesting sort of commonality that i find now when you started when you started to get your own get some rhythm with your own career did you say okay i'm going to carve out a strategy i'm going to focus on west of the 405 brentwood and this price point and th- did you do that kind of thing I did because I, I basically modeled myself after David Offer and another gentleman, Larry Young, who's been very influential, uh, who's also at Berkshire Hathaway. So I, and they were both very similar in terms of knowing the market and being a hard worker and being just friends and respectful to everybody and just great. They were great leaders and mentors. But I was on my own. I wasn't on their teams, but they would give me a lot of time and a lot of information. And Dave Ravitz, they were answering questions 24-7 for me for years, which accelerated me. I think that being on a team is probably crucial for new people. And I would have told myself, get on a team, officially get on a team, and don't worry about doing your own deals right away. But I started doing my deals right away. I was doing small ones, but I was doing them. How much business did you do your first year? So my first year, I was actually at DBL my first year, because Dave Ravitz, who was at 
John Arrow and David Oliver said, hey, you can't come into our office. It's a bunch of titans. It was Nancy Beckerman was the manager who was also very influential in my career. And they said, get some experience. If you like the business, then you can come here. So I went to DBL, which Nick Siegel, who I didn't know at the time, was the manager. So that was my first exposure. And he's like the ultimate sales guy. He's just as smooth and smart and sharp. And so I got so many, I picked the best things out of the people I saw. So that's where I started, DBL. And then a year later, I went to Prudential Brentwood and I was there for, I don't know, 14 years. And I think I lost your question. What did you ask me? <laughs> How many deals? Are, are oh, my first year. Yeah. So my first year, I think I did eight deals, nine deals. Which is still I, not- I think I made 40 or 50 grand because- my price mentor made forty or fifty grand. My yeah, price yeah. points was really slow. I was the number one rookie, so to speak. No, there was no one doing. I didn't realize I was doing a lot of deals, but I was doing deals more than I think. We at DBL they brought in like fifty new agents because they were opening all these offices and expanding, and there might be you know two or three of us that were doing deals. So I'm painting the picture. So you're you're in your first year. You got some really cool mentors. You're soaking knowledge off of. You've done about seven eight deals. So. Was there a point in the next couple, three years where you you just said you had a feeling or a moment like, you know what, I've made it. I've made it in real estate. <laughs> like, was there, did you have that, like, where you had a big deal or something that-, that... I still don't feel that way, right? <laughs> I still feel like- That's I'm, healthy. I still feel like I'm chasing, and, you know, we were talking earlier about Aaron Kerman and yeah. Drew Fenton and Sally Forster-Jones and on and on, and Jeff, I feel like I'm chasing them. I'm so far off that- I don't, you know, David Offer, I, I just felt, always felt that way. That I was so far away. And I'd see what David Offer was doing every day and Larry Young was doing every day. I, so I never felt like, oh, I made it. I know I was happy as hell when I got my first paychecks and I didn't have to call a lawyer to collect it because I spent my first 10 years in business working 67 hours a week in the music business and not getting paychecks and finding bands and then getting, you know, getting them taken from me. So I, when I got a $3,000 check, I, I thought, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Screw the music business. I'm done with that. And I ran with it. And, but I never got to the point where I felt I've made it. It was nice, though, to start making money, and I was just grateful because I had worked so hard in the music business for so long with nothing to show for it. Yeah. I was so grateful to be able to work hard, hustle, and get a paycheck. Looking back, they were small deals. I was doing $200,000 deals, $300,000, $500,000, driving to places in the outskirts of LA that even growing up here, I had no idea how to get there. I was using a Thomas guide to find things, but I was hustling. Open houses, Every Sunday, Saturday, trying to do whatever I could. Even if I didn't have clients, which I didn't, I would just drive around to open houses every Sunday to learn the inventory. I mean, I just, I really took it seriously and soaked it up. All the people you mentioned, I think that that's a healthy, and I think they all share that sentiment. Even Aaron Kerman, we just, you know, interviewed a couple of weeks ago, was talking about how when he doesn't have listings, which is really not the case anymore, but, right. you know, it's low, he gets very nervous like that's his anxiety meters sort of like you know oh i'm out of inventory or my inventory you know so it's kind of a comfort thing so i think everyone depending on what doesn't matter what level you're at it's a shared because we're we're in at the end of the day you're in sales you're You're in sales you're you're out of business every day you wake up exactly you got to go go after and you got to go make it happen i sold insurance out of out of college danny it's as hardcore as it gets yeah (laughs) so it was like, but it was the greatest experience that was sales experience traded for the world. I mean, it was it was hardcore and and yeah, you're a young guy trying to convince older people to buy insurance. You probably didn't even know what insurance was. Yeah, it was impl- I was what 20, young guy 22 knows what years old is. trying to you know yeah convince. They're like, what do you know? You, you get out of here. You know, that's a tough gig selling insurance. <laughs> so skipping ahead, you work with an extensive you know today with an extensive list of high profile clients, entrepreneurs, athletes, entertainers, developers. And you had that good beginning in the entertainment industry, which I think gave you obviously some good network, good contacts. But yeah. was this, did this happen more organically from that? Or did you go, hey, there's something here with this group that I could maybe start to really focus on, network with? Yeah. And how did well, that? I would love to have skipped to the top quickly. I've seen a lot of broker, and I wouldn't say a lot, but because most people don't. I did not jump into high profile, high price points right away. I started selling low end and just grinded my way up, step climbing the mountain slowly, slowly, slowly. And part of that was the people I was around, the, the David Offers, the, the Larry Youngs and Nancy Beckermans, they were almost had me feeling that you don't have the right to represent these types of houses until you are an expert. 
And I took that to heart. I probably made less money my first 10 years in the business because I really took that to heart. It's great advice. And it's great advice, but then I realized that, wait, 10 years later, I know more than 99% of these guys that are selling $30 million houses, and I've been afraid to to go there because I thought you have to be the best person. to. So that took me a long time to get that kind of confidence. So getting to high-profile people and CEOs and this and that, it took a while. It was a gradual growth and so a gradual organic, stepping yeah. up. And I think they've discovered me and they're still discovering me because I wasn't a high profile and I'm still not super high profile and I'm not on the $100 million listings. I'm behind the scenes and I'm starting to go out for those listings and I'm getting close and it's going to happen. But I've been climbing my way up. And Well, after we publish this podcast, Danny, you're going to be, <laughs> you'll, you'll hit- The secret's out. You, you'll hit 500 million in, in GCI next year. I mean, there you easy. go. Hey, Gary, can we sign that right here? <laughs> Did Aaron Kerman say he's going he's gonna to throw a couple hundred my way? James is going to throw a hundred. Everyone's going to throw me a hundred. You're going to share, share the wealth. I'll take it. I'll take it from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> so USC grads, let's talk about you're an SC grad. And here's another commonality I see with very successful Realtors. A lot of them have graduated from SC. Like I don't like like <laughs> it's it's very it's odd and maybe it's like sort of because the SC networking thing and all that. But what's your take here? Do you do you I notice a lot of SC grads this is that are, blow you away. I haven't got one deal that I'm aware of or one client from SC network, SC networking groups, alumni. Now, that's not to say that the the thesis about SC alumni that it's powerful. And you're right. I mean, there's a lot of billionaire developers and just successful business people, especially in LA that came out of SC and do a lot of networking. I was a little different. I didn't go to SC out of school. Part of my sports story that we jumped around is I actually had a injury in high school and I went from being a highly recruited athlete to only had a few choices. I ended up originally going to UC Irvine for baseball. And I was happy there. I'm going to stay there. And they had a great baseball program. But Title IX came. The state of California had to equalize scholarships between men and women. And UC Irvine and all all the UC schools had to cut a lot of sports, a lot of men's sports. Our whole baseball team, 30 guys, had to start over. And I didn't have a college resume. So I did the next best thing is I had a best, another best friend, Dave Rabbits and I are best friends with Kevin Millar, who played for the Boston Red Sox and Anyway, he was at L.A. City College, junior college, and he said, you got to come here. It's a great program. You'll build your resume for college and then go to a four-year. So that's what I did. I went to L.A. City College, had a great season, started getting recruited again, and I was getting recruited by some smaller schools, which I was happy with, but then SC came because my high school coach just got hired there. Frank Cruz just got hired as the assistant coach, and he ended up being the head coach later on at SC and LMU and the U.S. national team, but great guy and another mentor of mine. And he said, come here. We just had, they had two or three of their worst seasons in a row, and I thought, perfect. SC's rebuilding. I can go there and play. So I went there, and when I landed there, it was like, oops, they just had the best recruiting class in 30 years. <laughs> and all the guys that uh, their best recruits were playing outfield, uh, Jeff Jenkins, who was a first-round draft pick and, and major league star, was competing with me, Jock Jones, also for the Angels, Aaron Boone, who's the manager of the Yankees, on and on and on. These were the guys I was competing with. And what position did you play? I was playing outfield. Like which which one? Uh, all over the outfield. Okay, all over. I was playing center field. When I went to SC, it was like wherever I can go. What was your batting average? Well, at SC, I didn't play. Okay, and, so, and after, so it was a thousand. Yeah, I was a thousand. <laughs> I never got out once. Yeah, um, I didn't play, and I ended up having to make a decision because I got cut. They said we're not keeping you because we got you know these three guys at your position are first round draft picks, and I had a decision to make. It was my third school in three years, and I sat down with my dad, and he's like, well, "You got to just finish school," and, and I did. So that also plays into my network because I went to so many schools. Yeah, I, it expanded my network even further. But that. That's why I think I didn't have the SC network. I, I went, okay. I transferred yeah. my, as a third year, you know, and it was only there for two years. Side note, my 13-year-old son, Tyler, he's Mr. He's a baseball guy. That's his. Nice. He's, and we've been, we just went, got back for, we awesome. went to Cooperstown last year. Oh, it's the best. Cooperstown's the best. amazing. And, uh, and so it's interesting because he's prepping for high school ball and, and just, Incredible. And it's interesting to see. Like, and I'm learning because I was a basketball player. I played yeah. baseball before, but I was playing in high school. Basketball was my sport. But um, like how sort of strategic the position going in is like, because you have to be, the more utility you 
you are, the better chance you have to, to yeah. get on a team. And it's and, just ultra competitive. Yeah, it's, it's super. Oh my gosh, it's ultra. Even at the young, they, you have to play baseball year round just to be yeah. in the game right yeah. now. Yeah. I've, I mean, I have, that's a whole other podcast. I'm not thrilled about the whole club yeah. travel ball thing. I don't think it's the best thing for the kids, and it accelerates some kids, and then some kids with a lot of talent get left behind because they don't play. And it, that's a whole other podcast, but. Yeah, it's ultra competitive, but ultimately it's great life lessons. And, you know, I carry all that stuff with me from sports, the work ethic, the Mamba mentality, all that is part of who I am. I, that's that's me. Very cool. Now, we're going to talk about this famous house that you sold. Which famous one? The famous one. The Brady Bunch House. The Brady house. Bunch the House. The Brady Bunch House. <laughs> that is a famous house. So the infamous it's Brady so Bunch House. It's so funny that you were involved in this. I yeah, mean, it was a funny grew up situation. watching the Brady Bunch and that house is- Sorry, Lance. Is Lance probably, Bass yeah. is pissed off yeah, at me. So, he hates me now. So tell me, so there was a bidding war with, with NSYNC member, Lance. Yeah, um, and others. It was a ridiculous bidding war. I didn't realize how- the world thought about the Brady Bunch. And- so, so tell us the story. So, because let's go back, because most people probably haven't heard this, but yeah, this is a so great story. Yeah, so this was a year or two ago now. It was a little house in a nondiscreet part of Studio City and a fixer teardown. If it wasn't on the TV show, no one would think twice about it. It actually wasn't the house they lived in in the TV show. That was on a set, but it's the exterior elevation when they sh- when they open the show. So it comes on the market, and next thing you know, the press is going nuts and apparently people thousands of people are stopping in front of the house taking pictures i didn't know anything about this but people were doing that year round not just because it went on the market people would stop and take pictures so it goes on the market and there's like security there because so many people want to see it a lot of celebrities and high profile people were interested in buying the house it's like a collector's item and i had a couple clients i had an actress well-known actress client i took and uh, ultimately I, i had HGTV wanted it. And they're like, we really, we want it. We, we're we going to run a show around it. And it became, it was a full-blown crazy bidding war. And I'm sitting here going, I got the CEO of HGTV telling me he has to have it. Don't lose it. Breathing down my throat. And they have like 30 offers. Uh, and wow. it's, it's going way up. So who, so who reached out to you? Was it the CEO of HGTV? Was it of the, the network? That, well, that's who I was their... dealing with and their attorney who I know very well. And, you know, great guys. And, you know, it was like, look, this is a business. Danny, don't lose it. You have, yeah. I have to have it. We've got to have it. And they're like, it's, you know, this is the price. We'll go way up because we can have all these ancillary income streams. And we, you know, we look at it differently and this and that. And then all of a sudden it comes out in the press that Lance bass bought the house we're in the middle of negotiations at this point You're like what and i'm my heart drops my stomach's killing me i'm like oh i'm i'm dead these guys are gonna kill me this is it my reputation i'm screwed you know that feeling in real estate and it's all over lance bass is celebrating on social media and i call it's ernie carswell at the listing and i call him and I'm like we're in the middle of counter offers i know it's a crazy multiple but is there something I don't know? And he's like, no, no, no. This is uh, misunderstanding. I don't know what to do. So I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it ended up that there was only Lance and us and one or two other parties that separated and it got, it was back and forth real quick. And I remember I was actually, it was like at seven o'clock at night. And I was taking a jog. I was on my phone talking to the CEO and he's like, what the hell is this? We got to live. And I'm calling Ernie. I'm like, we'll go to this. Right. It was just one of those it was a bidding war that you would see on TV. Just like a storage war. It's like yeah. another... All the bidding wars you see on Million Dollar Listing are fake, but this was a real one that was that dramatic and that intense. And at the end of the day, you know, we had did what we had to do and there was nothing signed and Lance Bass was celebrating because he came in real high and then we... So it's one of those... We just, jumped over him. And, it's one of those, Danny, just keep adding a hundred grand until we, we get it. I won't I won't <laughs> say what happened, but it was... I was not going to lose that deal, and I'm really sorry, Lance. I'm a big fan of NSYNC, and my bad. <laughs> he can come over. Actually, they HGTV loves him, too, and they included him in the project, and it's all good. Everyone's happy. Did, did you ever talk to Lance about it? Did you ever... Uh, he, he was angry, but he, hey. he gave me a hug. Oh, uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny how... I mean, that that house had its own brand, like that was international. I mean, Brady Bunch. And- Apparently, it's the second most photographed house in the country after the White House. Go figure. Now, now you know the power of television. Yeah, that that was priced at one seven. I think we closed it at three five. So that was unusual to say the least. Can't use that as a comp. No, the neighbors all want to sell it. We're all selling. Like, sorry, <laughs> but, guys. But my house next door sold, sold for three, for three five. Yeah, what right. the heck? Perfect. I got another bedroom. That's a good Saturday Night Live skit, right there. Yeah, totally. 
So the, this, the A-list clientele, I'm always curious about, it's a different, more demanding group, For sure. Right? I mean, it's not for everybody. Everyone thinks, hey. Not I, at all. You know, it's a whole different world, right? Most people can't stomach it. And even if they think they can, they can't. It's very intense. There's a lot of handlers, a lot of business managers, a lot of lawyers, a lot of friends, a lot of age. It's a lot of personality and egos. So how do you handle, let's say you're working with a major A-lister, major, on selling their home, and you strongly disagree over the selling, the valuation, selling price. <laughs> how do you navigate that? No different than every other seller you meet with that wants 10 to 20% higher than their house is worth. But do I mean, they- I'm straightforward. I'm a straight shooter, and I think that's why clients... Clients that want the truth like working with me because I'm not going to buttercoat it. I mean, I'll, hey, look, you you want 20, but if we get 15, it's a home run. We can try 20. Odds are we're not going to fool anybody and we're going to be sitting for several months and chasing the market. I don't want you to blame me. I don't want you to forget this conversation that I'm telling you it's worth 13 and a half to 15, but we'll try 20 and you got to let the business manager know and the lawyer and the husband and the wife and the girlfriend and the friend and the this and that. Everyone's got to know because they the first one they're going to blame when it's not selling is me. Yeah. And even though I do all that and set the table, they still blame you. And now you got to deal with that. Like, well, we had this conversation. I sent you this email summarizing our conversation. You remember this one? And you got to do it in a nice way because you're not you're not trying to be right. You're just trying to yeah. get the job and done. There's and probably a level of respect that they almost want to see you fight for your price <laughs> or, like, or the real price than just agree and say, yes, that sounds good because I, I want the listing. Right. Um, I mean, I walk away from so many It never many ends listings. well, right? Yeah, I, I walk away from so many listings. And so do a lot of good brokers. You need to. And then yeah. there's ones where you say, hey, look, I'll take the chance for whatever reason. Either you take the chance because the seller says, I know it's a high price. Let's try it for a couple months yeah. and then we'll make a shift if we don't get lucky. Yeah. Or you feel like, hey, maybe I'll, you do, nothing's impossible, right? Maybe I'll find that needle in the haystack. So I don't always say no. And I am not 100% right 100% of the time. And real estate at the high end is really emotional. And these price points have nothing to do with comps. So I got to be mindful of that too. But more times than not, <laughs> you want to be honest and, and give them real data and real realistic expectations. Otherwise, it just creates more conflict down the road. You got to always think five steps ahead. It's chess, not checkers. Right, Warren? That's right. <laughs> Damn it. I keep trying to tell these guys that, but no one's listening. Stop playing checkers. Speaking of the high end, Jeff Bezos just purchased David Geffen's Beverly Hills Warner Estate for $165 million, Danny. Who's Jeff? Yeah, just some dude who owns a little company. Can I have a loan, Jeff? Called Amazon. It's just a little bookstore. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, that's an incredible, incredible property with so, so new price hold on let me okay. set this this is we, we're going to talk about this because this, this is my blowing. this is my blowing. it is new price record blew the other one away and he reportedly this is not confirmed but he reportedly just purchased another 90 million dollar vacant piece of land in beverly yeah, hills he did from okay the state of late of microsoft founder, Paul Paul Allen, which will reportedly set another record for the most expensive vacant yep land single family piece of land so first question i have for you regarding the sale like, have we just reset the new norm for mega listings in LA? Like, we're, where we don't blink anymore at $100 million listings? Yes. It's good to be the king. And Man, then, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. There was an article today about saying that this $165 million deal represented 0.13. I saw that. Of his net worth. Nothing. Which is like, yeah. It's, it's like me paying $20. Yeah. It's a, like, it's a cup of coffee, <laughs> basically. For, for most people. Appreciate it, David and Jeff, for not inviting me on the yacht when you did the deal. That was awesome. I'm glad I missed out on that one. But how this market is changing, Danny. So like for context, in the last year alone, it is changing. we had a, the $150 million purchase of the Chartwell estate. We had the $120 million purchase of the Spelling Manor. $100 million sale of NB Universal, Ron Myers, Malibu yep, estate. That's the Ovitz house. And then we have house. the Bel Air spec home. That sold for ninety four. That was listed for one point, well, like two fifty or something. Yeah, Mikowski's. Yeah, I mean that's just in the last twelve months. And I think right now there's about seven. There's a lot active coming. listings over a hundred. So my second question: This is what struck me as interesting. Maybe it doesn't for you, but it's interesting to me that the Bezos Geffen deal was done without an agent. Yeah, it pisses me off. Right, because the, <laughs> the commission would have been just you know yeah. a little check of of several million dollars. Do you think this will set a new precedent for the super high end where, 
you know, this was obviously off market, da da da, but like, like, if, not really. You don't think so? No, I think that's happened in the past, and there's one-offs, and you know, billionaire and a billionaire that know each other, and that happens. But the odds of two people, a buyer and a seller, connecting and like the buyer wanting that house and the seller willing to sell at a price—it's so unlikely. And you know, ninety-five percent of the time, even at that level, if not ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, there's going to be brokers involved. And uh, I don't think that's a trend. You okay. know, I think it's. You I know, just think it's curious because that's the first thing they're like, oh, "Who's the listing agent? Or who's the, who got the?" And no, nobody. The word's like, out. Yeah. You, know, you know, the billionaires don't use the listing agents. Well, most of them do. Ninety-nine point nine nine percent do. And these guys, well, Jeff Bezos was out looking at homes. You know, yeah, with yeah. agents. Yeah, you know, he's been out there looking. And well, not to be outdone, we got the one. Yeah. Coming soon, right? Being developed on Stradella. By Nile. And just for context, for the people that may have not <laughs> heard about this this place, it's 100,000 square feet on yeah. four acres. A little extra space. 20 bedrooms, 30 bathrooms, We're five all... swimming pools, a Monaco-style casino, a nightclub with VIP access, bowling alley, a hair salon, a gym, a 30-car garage, and here's my favorite. A five thousand square foot master bedroom, coming soon for five hundred million. Cozy for a Russian oligarch <laughs> or a Colombian drug lord. What? <laughs> Can I just get invited to play some blackjack right. and uh, go to the go to the disco? Get their gambling license, and it could be a cool casino. I mean, on hundred thousand square feet. I think you could have a few people. I mean, geez, you could make a hotel. It's right? spectacular. Look, we've never seen homes in Los Angeles or anywhere in the world built at this level and this scale with spas and wellness centers and discos and basketball and it's there's several of them where do we go from here though that's like it's just like okay I mean, like where does it go do you like mine's got 37 bedrooms i got yeah. 40 baths I, I don't know that there's enough land to do more i mean but maybe we would have said that five years ago we would have said that you could never build a hundred thousand square foot house i don't know where it goes from here you know i don't know so here's the 500 million is is a nice marketing number i mean is it going to get 200 300 we'll see it hasn't sold yet and there's been you know billionaires looking for houses and like you said six others that have sold now the ones that i that have sold that you've mentioned for the most part other than mikowski are homes with province and province and uh, acreage and their generational states i mean that warner estate is 10 acres it's spectacular well well, winnix estate is spectacular not new spec homes although you know discotheques and wellness centers who knows let's see let's see what well, they I, pay for it i just before we started the podcast i ran some numbers danny and 20 million is the new middle class in la Ugh. like the for the super high end like yeah. that's that's, it's that's not, the entry level to the high end it's not even <laughs> worth mentioning 20 million come on that's like oh you bought a little 20 million something yeah the metrics and the calculus is mind-blowing it's mind-blowing you think about the wealth you have to have to purchase a 20 million dollar home Hundreds oh, of millions gosh. of dollars of net worth, let alone 50, 100. So, yeah, we're getting into numbers that are boggling. And let's be real. I mean, go to an entry-level West Side neighborhood and a $3 million home, you know, who's who's got the income to buy that when you really right. break it down? I mean, I've become numb to it because it's what we do every day. But when you break out of that fog and right. say, what normal people – you know, can afford this much and, right. you know, you got to make millions of dollars and have it, it's it's bonkers. But this is what we do. And there's a lot of wealth in the world. And L.A. is having its moment. It's the most trendy, wanted city in the world. So people well, from all over the world and all over the country want to buy homes here. So that's helped us. Well, L.A. just got a nice raise on the, the property taxes for the Geffen, you know? Yeah, yeah they'll collect some property taxes. That's going to be, uh, what, 12? No, is, it's going to be that? like... No, it's going to be like... It's like 20 million? It's like 30 million or 30 something. Million. 30 million. 30 million in property taxes. You're paying like 3 million a month on taxes. Yeah. You better be worth like 100 and whatever billion. And think uh, about the gardening bill and the utility bill and, you know, Murdoch just... You know, his big one that he bought. Just thought of this. I don't know why, but we, there's an agent in South Bay, classic guy. He will rename nameless. He was showing a, I don't know, a $12 million property in Rolling Hills. You know, was giving a tour, his, his listing, and the, and the buyer said, uh, you know, how much is the electricity? Kind of a question. And, he's, yeah. and, and the, you know what his answer was? I can guess. <laughs> if you ask, this isn't, you can't yeah. afford it. He said, basically, he said, he and he did it in his flamboyant sort of like brash, Ugh. you know, way, which was can, I can't repeat here, but it was hilarious. But anyway, 
It just it, it's funny how like yeah. Imagine the all the other monthly expenses that yeah. are going on with a yeah. With do, a, do a budget for that. Do a budget, house. yeah. <laughs> do a budget for like that one. Seven million a month. Let's talk about Compass, shall we? Since Compass. we're, we're in, we are here at we're, Compass, we're in Compass it's headquarters on Wilshire. I think they they own half the block on Wilshire now, in Beverly Hills. Well, we're trying to own a lot more than half the block, but yes. So. Go back to 20, or I'm going to take you back to 2017. Your CEO, Compass CEO, Robert Refkin, unveiled yeah. an ambitious plan to grab 20% market share in the country's 20 cities by 2020. While this hasn't happened yet, getting close, Compass has been on a tear and ended up last year with 15,000 agents, sold $88 billion in real estate, which was more than double the $33 billion from a year prior, continues to acquire new, you know, Chris Cortaza. I mean, the names are, 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 are surprisingly people that have had tenure with other brokerages are, are coming to Compass. Yes, they are. Um, what can you say here? You're, you, you were one of the earlier I mean, I migrations. Too, I, I'd say Robert is out of his mind to think that. It's a bold gold, right? Who in the world would think they're going to come from starting a company to 20% market share? Who is Compass? That's what we all said about four or five years ago. But Robert is a brilliant, visionary, hardworking guy, authentic, incredible human being. And he's put together a team of executives from all the best companies in the world and brought them into this real estate business and said, hey, look, we're raising a billion dollars. We have the best executives from every facet of the market, from the guy from Microsoft, our CTO, from people from Nike, from Goldman Sachs. And we're going to now try to build the new real estate company and the way it should be. And he's he's done it. He's nowhere near where he wants to be. But you know what? We are going to reach 20% by the end of this year. If not, we're going to be damn close. And yeah. all the most important markets were there or more. And it's sensational. And they've treated agents really well. They've put agents first. Obviously, they have the resources to back that up. And they went from an unknown startup that people would like to badmouth and step on to a juggernaut that now everyone wants to work at and wants to be a part of. And there's been people like me and other veterans in the business that have been around, that have experienced it and said, no, this is real. This is a real place. This is not smoke and mirrors. All you have to do is work here for a little bit and experience Robert and the well, other executives and you get a taste of what's really happening here. Well, what I find interesting, because West LA is what west side is unique i mean the 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 caliber and sophistication of brokerages here is like no other for no sure other in the country for sure i mean you got have Hil a dozen hilton and highland the agency Absolutely. it goes on and on okay yeah these brokerages have been groundbreaking each of them. disruptors in their own right for sure each right? of them is dynamic dynamic mind-blowing and, 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 and set the business set the bar head. and they yeah. everyone resets and resets so here comes compass into the most competitive crazy sophisticated market and obviously they're everywhere but like and is pulling some of these top agents out i'm always fascinated by okay you left the agency in 2018 that was yeah a tough thing to do but i did yeah so i'm always fascinated by like what's the pitch like what what got you over the yeah the because you're not alone. I mean, other people are, are have moved. But. Yeah, that's sort of a touchy subject. Obviously, I had great deep ties to, to the agency and love the agency. And what they've done is spectacular. I mean, they set the bar for marketing in our industry five, six, seven years ago when they started. Some of their guys, I mean, Mauricio and Santiago and Billy and Blair, and I don't know, some of the most talented, smart, greatest guys. And I love those guys. So I wasn't thinking of leaving. And, you know, things happen. And Compass came to me and explained what they were doing. And I always wanted to be more than just a broker. When I went to the agency, when I left Berkshire Hathaway, the only reason I really left was it was a spectacular marketing company and brand. But it was I wanted to be a part of it, wanted to grow with it, wanted to be an owner and wanted to be a leader. And, uh, and I did have some of that there. And it was a, a phenomenal experience. But I wanted more of it. And I wanted to grow more with the company. And that company was growing really fast. And I wasn't as included as I wanted to be. Enough, and they had no reason to include me. It was their company. They started it. It was their baby. Uh, but Compass offered me all that. And I wasn't looking for a, a new company. But when I looked into Compass and opened the hood and started exploring it and doing due diligence... And they said, hey, we're going to give you everything you want. You're going to be a leader. You're going to be an ambassador. We're going to give you equity. We're going to 
help support you. And I got to start a podcast and, and I, it was like, okay, they're giving me everything I want. I tried to make her work at the agency. I would have for sure would have stayed because I love those guys and they're a great successful company. But at the end of the day, what Compass offered was so good and it wasn't cash. They didn't write me a check. It just, everything about it was so good. And now that I've been here, it surpassed my expectations and what I expected. It's just, it isn't smoke and mirrors. It's, it's real. At least that's my experience. Well, it's an interesting dynamic because I always look at everything through a marketing lens. Like I'm, this is what I, why I do what I do. I just love, and I love this vertical because you guys have it so tough guys and gals like to, to do it, do this for a living. Yeah. And I respect it and understand it because I came up through insurance and sales and whatever, but you know, the drill, it's a battle. <laughs> I always found that it, the, the broker agent sort of relationship is interesting because on one hand, I mean, Sally Forrester Jones, Aaron, they're brands, uh-huh. they're, they're, they're bigger. They're like companies. They're bigger than, than the brokerage brand in the sense that, that that's, that's the draft. That's the, the magnet. Mm-hmm. So is it more, you know, at some level, it becomes more about culture and fit and feel, or does it? Like, or I'm an agent, and I think if I leave Brokerage X and join Brokerage Y, that I will be able to grow my business 18% in the next 12 months. Yeah. I think that's a very difficult question to answer because it's different for everybody. There's no one right answer. I mean, real estate, everyone's business is so different. Everyone's experience is so different. And yes, people leave for a variety of reasons. And we all hope whenever we change companies, you would think that you're going to do better. But I was doing great at the agency. I was doing great at Berkshire Hathaway before the end. So yes, you still hope it's going to take you to the next level. But for Compass, they had just everything and more. The, the marketing was phenomenal. And the agency set the bar for marketing and Hilton Highland. And Compass was right there doing the same thing and actually have some of their talented marketing people here now. Uh, the technology and the the technology stack is right up there, is good or better than anything. And the people and the culture, just to, to work around these people, it's just been it's been really inspiring and, and satisfying. At the end of the day, you're on a listing appointment. Mm-hmm. On a scale of one to 10, how important is a brokerage name versus your own individual, what got you there to a seller? Five at most. Okay. I think it hurts you if you're not at one of the elite companies. Okay, if you're so at one of the half dozen or so delete companies, that's good. That's yeah. all you need. And so they, they only want you. They don't, obviously, they want the person, not the company. So it's interesting because I think the game has changed quite a bit. Like, you know, bigger was better back mm-hmm. when, 10, 15 years ago. Of course. And when you're with, hey, we're the largest, blah, blah, blah. We sold this got, money. We, yeah, we have number one share international, blah, blah, Yeah. Ooh. Like, what does it translate to the single family home, homeowner in Pacific Palisades? For the, yes. Nothing. As nothing. zero, it's zero and bears. But- there's something to that now, I think, um, where I look at it like a bike, like a Tour de France. Like, I always preach, like... I love that you, analogy. You, like, you got to... You draft. You draft the brand. And if you do that and you learn how to do that successfully, you use less energy and you have just as much speed. Yeah. That, it's super strategic. That's a brilliant way of looking at it. And it's true. You know? It's, it's being smart and strategic. And yes. Yes. And if you don't do that, you're going to be expending so many it's more headwind. resources and energy it's all headwind yeah on to my favorite subject marketing and brand building mm-hmm. now danny you're the only one that i know you've launched your own podcast in the i have last year last year it's I'm called a year in it's called i'm going to give you a plug you're going to give me a plug later right on your podcast Absolutely. all right the deal with danny brown which i think is brilliant in terms Thank of you. you know how you position it for audience development it's your own creative outlet for your business. So tell us your origin story here. Like that's a unique, yeah. unique so thing. Please subscribe and give me a five-star review and do the <laughs> same for Warren. Uh, you know, it started years ago, the idea of wanting to do a podcast years ago, five, six years ago. And I even bought equipment from Amazon and tried a couple test runs, did some recording on my own. And I just couldn't get over the mechanics of how to record it and make it sound legit and how do I distribute podcasts? I didn't know much about it. So I, two or three times over the last couple of years, I did that. And when I got to Compass, you know, Robert basically was like, hey, whatever you want to do, we support you. We believe in you, you know? And I said, well, I want to do this podcast. I've been thinking about it. And he's like, so do it. And it was like, all right, I have no excuses now. And I'm like, I got to find somebody to take 
the mechanics out of it. And I did. I found a great producer who's been doing it for six years. He's an expert. Set it up, does the equipment. I didn't have to do anything but think about guests. And that's how it started. And I thought, look, I just want to amplify conversations that I have every day with clients. And the first year, we've we've done 38 or 40 episodes. It's a lot of real estate-centric guests in the first season because it's my personal network. But there's also the head of the CIA was on it, an NFL All-Pro guy. James Ferrier was on it. Uh, you know, Stryker, Hedge Fund, Striker from K-Rock, my, yeah. one of my music business buddies on it. So now it's basically elite performers in all businesses, sports and entertainment and beyond and trying to figure out you know, what makes them tick, what's their story, what's their advice. So I can then distill it and you know, distribute it to an audience to learn about success in business and all that sort of stuff. So it's not revolutionary what I'm doing, but it's authentic to me and I, I just love it. It's just been a great compliment to what I do. And it's probably improved your skills, right, as a in your profession because it's the art of communication and right and listening skills. You have to really be a good yes, listener to make this my wife make tells this work. Me. I talk too much during the podcast. So <laughs> yes, it you have to be tuned in to listening and listening and not being in your own head thinking about what I want to say or what I want to comment. Yeah, it's it, more just listening, my, which is what I do every day and what I need to do every day. Listening you know, is the key <clears throat> to being successful in business and negotiating. I mean, you got to listen. Before I launched this podcast, I went to podcast school. At Harvard? And master's. And yeah, it was actually, it was Yale, oh, uh, Yale. School of Podcasting. Great. And, uh, it, it was a four-year course. No, I'm kidding. You it, didn't it, go to, I thought you went to Pierce College for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so funny because you just do it. Like you just go and it's rough and it sucks and yeah. you go, oh, do I sound like that? And you get better. Oh my better. gosh. And then you just keep you doing it and you get better. Craft. But it's funny you said that. It was the, my first iterations my first several and i'm still i still suck at this but i'm getting better right yeah i can tell is is basically no, just <laughs> just is sort of getting off your these are the points i need to make and yeah. uh, like getting off your page and just getting on the page you know it's so true because you come in with an agenda and you don't want to miss bullet yeah, points you but got, you gotta follow the lead you of follow the, the guest you gotta follow them just like you gotta follow your client's lead what are your thoughts on personal branding for agents you need to separate yourself any way you can when you're in a business where people look at us as a commodity. You got to brand yourself and whatever that is from how you look, how you talk, how you dress, every marketing piece you put out, your website. I think branding is crucial. I don't agree with the fake it till you make it culture that is bred so deeply in sort of the younger brokers that are in our industry. I think the TV, the TV broker culture has probably helped that a lot, I think. I'm pretty sure that's what it, but I see a ton of that. So everyone's branding themselves as going to the $50 million house on Caravan and taking a picture and like haven't sold right. a $500,000 condo and hey, you know, take it easy with that. I think people are hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. But in general, you need to figure out what is your thing? And what, how do you, how do you separate yourself? How does that look? How does that translate digitally print? If you're doing a podcast, whatever you're doing, whatever your, your brand is, it's so important. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, it's interesting with marketing. I mean, the world has changed. I launched our company, M3 Media and Digs, 10 years ago. God, it's and been 10 years? 10 years, yeah. And Good like, for you, man. That's major thanks. success. It's a it's, tough business. My wife tough, was in publishing. Tough business. For many um, years. That's well, a tough you know, business. It's, it's, it's publishing, but it's marketing. Like, marketing, this is yeah. this The reason why we've succeeded, I think, is because we look at it through that lens. You it's know a what marketing, I mean? branding and company. Print's just a channel. Digital's just a channel. Social's just a platform. You know, it's like That's smart. But realtors today, because there's so much like opportunity and access and distribution digitally and what mm -hmm. have you, you know, they chase shiny new objects. They're out, and yes. it's like people with a lot of talent are almost ruining their chances. <laughs> I see to a lot of degree because they're just they're out there chasing and looking for shortcuts and. It's a big looking for shortcuts business, and I'm seeing that a lot. And there, yeah, there are a few people that are blessed and lucky to start at the top, and somebody's family or someone's best friend is buying a big house, and you see that in every business. But for the most part, everyone's starting at the yeah, bottom. But and even you, that doesn't last, right? You no, get one deal, two deals. Everyone's um, starting grinding your way up, and you got to figure out your brand and be authentic, and you got to be consistent because everyone always asks me, "What well, is your money? Are you making money on your podcast? Or you making money?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know." I can't tell you in 18 years which ad I took made me money, but I know that I have all these buckets and a wide net, digital print, audio, branding well, you just everywhere. brought up something important. I'm glad you brought that up. And here's another crazy 
thought most agents treat their business like it's a short term or short term sales cycle business. Yes. Like like it's a retail furniture store or it's like mm-hmm. you can You're put out a coupon. Xerox machine and you can put out a coupon. You can hang a sign and say open, you know, ten percent off. It's not. Homes are the best agents in the country, you know, eighty twenty rule, right? Yeah. They do they're doing a maybe two listings, one listing a month or or one sale a month a kind pencil, of a thing. Yeah. And they they're all a year, two years out. Like it's a long sales cycle. You got to treat your marketing the same. It's got to be long term, and it's got to be repetitive. You got to, but it's a long game. But it's most not people a see it like, like no, it's yeah. Like, most people look to transact, transact and like, let me hold on as much of the commission and hold on to it. And it's counter. It's counterintuitive. If you want to last, you got to play the long game. You got to go market, slow. and you got to invest. Our business. Part of our business is marketing and branding, right? For ourselves and for the it's properties, huge. it goes hand in hand. And if you're not investing a percentage of your income, you're not treating it like a business. Now, that doesn't mean that go spend and go bankrupt buying cover no, no. pages, but you got to strategically, consistently do it. And I get all the time people saying, well, did it work? Did you get it? You can't look at it. Did it work? You're not going to be able to door knock for a week and go, I didn't get a listing. You're not going to be able to take out couple full page ads and get calls from a billionaire in China. Like, no, you got to every month or every week, plan it out year long, year after year after year. And that casts a huge net. Yeah. And don't think of it. Don't start with the product or the, the means like it's a Facebook this, or it's an Instagram that, or it's a print this, or it's like, first, I think you got to be authentic to who you're, who are you? Who are you? What makes you tick? hundred percent. Where's your passion? Where, you know, get into that headspace first. And then figure out where you want that headspace or that passion to exist. Yeah. What, like, where do you want the world to see that? You know? And it Absolutely, could be... Absolutely, 100%. It could be, hey, I'm all about Instagram, man, because I'm a photographer. I have mm-hmm. a photography thing and blah, blah. Great. Or I'm all about podcasting because I was a radio. That's I was such a, radio. a good point. You know what I mean? That people don't look at it that way. Like, you they're, can ask others what they're doing for success, but you've right. got to bring it back to yourself. What works for me? Because what is that's my how the world sees you and... and if you had, if this was your first year in the business, Danny, yeah. and you had no deals, zero deals. That's what it feels like You're right Danny now, Brown, Warren. okay? <laughs> you go on a listing appointment. You, go on a, you went on 100 listing appointments, okay? And you were up against Chris Cortazzo or Aaron Curl, whoever. The oh, top. Just those guys? Just, yeah. No worries. Slam dunk. My, 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 <laughs> my question to you would be, would you get any listings if you went on 100 and you had no business, first year in the business, you had a card that says Danny Brown Compass, would you get any of those listings? Yes. Why? I think it's a numbers game. I think if you do enough and work hard enough and get in front of enough people, you're going to connect with somebody. If you're smart enough and you can back it up and you study each property and you know what you're talking about, I'd be prepared. Even if I haven't sold anything, I'd be prepared. I'd know all the inventory. I'd know all the comps. And yeah, am I going to lose most of them? Yeah, you still lose most of them. Even after 18 years, if you're going up against Chris Cortazzo and Jade Mills, it's a battle. We all battle each other. But if I was brand new, I would have enough information where I'm going to get a you're, few of those. You're going to get more than a few. And here's why. I mean, it's sort of the laws of of attraction and being authentic. It's like your whole passion and who you are, your vibe is going to translate and align with people who are like you. It doesn't matter if you're number one or number 8,000. Like, mm-hmm. hey, uh, Danny's cool. He's chill. I, I yeah, wanna, someone's going to connect and like I, your style. I like and that he trust. played baseball. I like that he yeah, was in entertainment. I like that he his dad's, you know, jazz, uh, whatever it is. You know, there's yeah. a – people often forget to be themselves and project themselves. And sorry, I'm, I'm on a, I'm on my, my – You're on a good here. rant. I like it. Yeah, though, but I'm just – That's a I'm, big lesson for yeah, agents I get, to learn. I, for me, I just get crazy – passionate about when I see people doing it, just be taking shortcuts. So anyway, let's get off that. that preach, malicious. baby, preach. You were right, 100%. What's the biggest... You did go to Yale, I guess, apparently. I, I, yeah, yeah. What's the biggest failure, mistake, lesson you've learned thus far in your... How many years it, is it now? It, 20? Today or every day? In your career? Like, what's, oh, how many? What, how, I, I got uh, 2001. I was an assistant. I got licensed in 2002. So, um, so you're well, 18, 18 years. 18 years. Okay. Damn. How did I do anything for 18 years? You know, I make so many mistakes. I feel like you have to make mistakes if you push the envelope and try new things. 
and constantly reach for greatness, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to get kicked in the face and you just just got to get up. How many times do you get up? You're going to get knocked out. Every day I feel like there's mistakes being made. And a lot of the mistakes, there's nothing I can control. So I, you call them mistakes. If things don't work out the way you want them to, I call it a mistake. My view is Anytime something doesn't go well or I don't get what I want, I think about what's the lesson? What could I have done different? Nine times out of 10, the answer is there's nothing I could have done different. It's out of my control. One out of 10, maybe there's something to learn and you add it to your toolbox and you don't let that happen again. And you repeat that mentality over and over and over. And that's, but I make a ton of mistakes all I think everyone does. And I think you're never going to be perfect and you're never going to make everyone happy. And that's a hard lesson to learn in this business. You're never going to make everyone happy. Even if you execute flawlessly, people are still going to be upset about one thing that the light was left on in the kitchen. And even though you've shown the house 300 times and fed the dogs and, you know, brought 10 offers to the table and it's 10% higher than, you're still going to be, oh, you left that light down. I'm really disappointed. How could you? It's just the way it is. You got to be able to stomach that. That's our business. How would you define your success in three words? Hmm. I'd say creativity, listening, and I'd say uh, relentlessness. I like it. We're going to do rapid fire. Uh Uh-oh. Finish this sentence. If I wasn't in real estate, I would love to... Be a football coach. Ah, that's a curveball. That would be baseball if it was coaching. I, I both. I just want to be a coach. And I might, right. I might quit today and go be a full-time <laughs> coach. So if you know anyone hiring, I'm for hire. You're putting it out there right now. Yeah. If you can invite three people to your dream dinner party, who would be there and what would you serve? Ooh, let's see. How about Sean Carter, Jay-Z? How about... Uh, Lance Bass? Lance Bass is always welcome. <laughs> God, there's so many people. Who else? Oprah can come. How about, uh, who else? Who else do I love? Uh, how about Derek Jeter? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> what would I serve? We could have some sushi, yeah. some tequila, some sushi, mix it up. Derek and Oprah, I can... Yeah, that would, that would be a fun dinner, huh? <laughs> Jay-Z. Good, good, <laughs> good conversation. I'd like to be the fly on the wall on that one. Yeah. Answer this question. Favorite app? DocuSign. Oh, yeah. That's a profound statement from you. That's how you get paid. <laughs> What's your go-to social platform? Instagram. Favorite place to have dinner in LA? Dantana's. Mm. What did you try once but will never try again? God, I'll try anything once and probably twice. Oysters? I'm not an oyster <laughs> fan. You know, I'd have to agree with you. That would be on. That would be my top. Like <laughs> people five love for them. Sure. I don't. Yeah. Where do you live, Danny? Cheviot Hills. A couple minutes nice. from here. That's one place I know of, but I don't know about. It, what, what's it's it like? under the radar. <laughs> what's it like? Uh, Chevy Hills, it's unlike most neighborhoods in LA. It's a real neighborhood. It's not a grid. There's lots of hills and trees. It looks like an East Coast, sort of Connecticut, Vermont. Bigger type. lots kind of Bigger thing. lots, older homes, charming homes. It's central to everything, surrounded by massive golf courses, which is rare in LA. There's mm. this Rancho Park Golf Course, the Hillcrest Country Club Golf Course. And, uh, you know, it's two minute drive to Beverly Hills, two minute drive to Century City. You know, 10 minutes on the freeway to the to the beach. It's very central. It's a ton of families and parks. It's it's unusual for LA. What do you do for fun when you're not selling real estate and podcasting and surfing, playing baseball or sports with my kids, looking at art? I love looking at art. Cool. And do you travel? Or do you like? To... Yes, we do travel a lot as a family. Yes, all the time. Where do you I think like it's go? mandatory. Love going a lot of places. Italy, we're going to Italy this summer, my wife and I. I, I love Hawaii is a special place because we surf. Our kids are getting into surfing. Which island do you like? I like going to Oahu. I like going to the Kahala Diamond Head because I can chill outside of the city, but then I can get into Waikiki for dinner and I can surf a bunch of places and best of both worlds. Tell us a funny, can't believe it happened to me real estate story. Oh, there's a lot of those, but I have one that always pops up. It's my client who's a, we'll go nameless, a big business guy was telling me how great he's loving life. He's bought his house. He bought a house and I sold it to him and he wanted me to come check out some upgrades. And he's like, you got to come by anytime. Even if I'm not there, just come by. And I, so I texted him one day. I'm like, oh, I'm down the street. Come by, come by. So I show up. I'm like, you sure I can go in? I was no. He's like, yeah, nobody's home. Just go in and da da da. There's. He told me where the key is. Told me where the alarm is. So I walk in and I'm like, I don't. I couldn't tell. Was someone home? It got a weird feeling. And I go to the backyard because he wanted me. He redid the pool. And guess who's in the backyard? 
his topless hot model girlfriend. Oh. And I'm like, oh, hi. Hello. How, how are you? <laughs> yeah, that's embarrassing. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Kind of, sort yeah. of. I'm sorry, not really, yeah. but I'm uh, sorry. So yeah. I'm like, dude, <laughs> did you know you're going, oh, I forgot. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I saw the pool and got to meet her and she was lovely. Yeah. So that was a funny story. That kind of stuff happens. So you hear that. You got to be careful what house you walk into. Right. You think you're alone and you're not. And this is a reoccurring, not maybe that exact one, but that wasn't so bad. I'm okay. No, not right? at all. That was a good one. So let's get your closing thoughts. What are two pieces of advice you would give to your younger self, Danny? God, I think about this often. One would be to think bigger, think bigger, and don't be afraid to take risks, investment risks. I know in real estate, especially when I started, I thought I can't invest in real estate. I don't know enough. And, you know, that was 2001, 2002, and I was looking at $500,000 fixers in prime Venice thinking, God, this would be great to fix up. But I didn't have much money, didn't think I was experienced enough, but I could have, if I had the confidence and the know-how, I didn't even need the know-how. I just needed the confidence to go out and say, hey, can I borrow a few bucks here and make some money? So I think have more confidence and think bigger. If you could have one superpower, what would that be? Mm, reading the future. So once I got that down, I pretty much could do anything. You know, that's, that's unique. I ask this question all the time, and that, I haven't heard that one. I like that. And maybe ending terrorism on the planet. That would be a good superpower. I wouldn't mind that. But if I could read the future, I could do a lot of things. You could do I'm probably... reading your future right now. Where it's oh. looking bright. Is it? Oh, good. <laughs> Is a light ahead above me? <laughs> yeah, it's looking good. Nice. What could you tell the audience that they would be surprised to know about you? Even though we covered a ton about you, what would be... Any surprise, like, idiosyncrasies that we I mean, would love I'm, to hear about? Of course. I mean, I'm nuts. What else? Can I, there's so much <laughs> I can He's nuts. Hear. Yeah. There it is. I'm nuts. I've lost my <laughs> mind, Ward. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think I'm probably a lot older than I look. That's one thing. And don't judge a book by its cover. All right. How about that? <laughs> All right. With that, I'd like to thank you, Danny Brown, for sharing oh, your thanks, story man. with us. That was a lot of fun. Continued success to you. I appreciate it. It was great spending time with yeah, you. Yeah, and we'll, let's try to do this again soon, okay? I'll get you on soon. I like you on my podcast. Hey, let's I'd do love it. it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks. I appreciate cool. it. You got Take it. Take care. Take care. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time.